Well, wonderful to see each one of you here with us today, and uh, we hope that you had a happy 4th of July yesterday. I'm thankful for the celebration that we could have celebrating our nation's freedoms. And uh, yesterday I took some time to, in the morning to read through the Declaration of Independence, just thinking about all that people stood for and uh, the cause that they were fighting for back during that time, and thankful for all those up until this day that have given their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy. And thank you to those of you who have served in our armed forces and, and served our country. Thank you for that. We appreciate your sacrifice. And it's a wonderful day to be able to celebrate our freedom. But our freedom doesn't come just because we're Americans. Our freedom comes because we are God's children. And that's where freedom truly comes from. And any freedom that we do enjoy, even as Americans, is a freedom that is given by God. And so we're glad to be able to come together this morning and worship, not our nation, worship our God. And I hope that you'll uh, take your Bible with me this morning. We'll go ahead and dismiss our children out with James out to Children's Church, heading back there to the Fellowship Hall, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Well, this is a first for me. Uh, I've already preached this message once this morning, so you're getting the second round. I don't know if that's going to mean it's going to be better or worse, but I'm excited. It's good to see my friend Robert here today. He's usually traveling the roads of our country. Glad that you're able to be home this weekend. Glad you're here, my friend. And uh, he's, a, he's driving all around the country, keeping us supplied with things, I'm sure, different loads all the time on his truck. But glad that uh, his path has led him our way this weekend. A lot of times he has to join us online, so it's nice to see him in person. I normally see his face pop up online, so he's a faithful one. Whether he's away or whether he's here, it's good to have him with us today in person and live in the flesh. So we're glad you're here today with your family. I know your family is as well. Colossians chapter 3, we've been looking over the last number of weeks now on these relationships that Paul talks about here at the end of this chapter. He first starts with the relationship of husbands and wives. This is a relationship that many of you are involved in. And uh, if you want to hear the full two messages on that relationship, you can go back and, and listen to those. They're on our, on our website. You can get to our recordings there. You can go to our YouTube page and you can watch those there as well. But he starts with that relationship, he moves into the relationship of parents and children. And uh, that's also a relationship that all of us are involved in one way or another. Everybody here is a child of somebody. And I know most of you all also have children of your own. So that's something that relates to us all in one direction or the other. But the final relationship that he deals with here in Colossians chapter 3 is the relationship of masters and servants. Or, as that word servant could also be translated, slaves. And that's the relationship that I want us to consider this morning. But before we jump right in and focus on that relationship, let's go back to verse 18 and let's read through the passage together. I'll read it out loud. You follow along. Beginning in verse 18 down through verse, or verse 1 of chapter 4. Because I want you to see some of the parallels between all of these relationships as are detailed for us here in Colossians 3. Verse 18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives. And be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Now, verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. There are a couple things that we can notice just about this passage as a whole. One is that the one who is serving is mentioned first each time. So the wife is mentioned before the husband. The child is mentioned before the parents. The servant is mentioned before the master. But in each and every case, the one who is commanded to submit or commanded to serve is also commanded not just to serve the individual, the human person that they are to serve, the wife to her husband, the child to his parents, the servant to his master, but ultimately each one is challenged to be focused upon and ultimately serving the Lord. You notice back in verse 18 it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Or in verse 20, it's speaking of the children, it says, For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Then you go down to verse number 22, where it speaks to the servants, and it says they are to do this fearing God. The same idea is repeated in verse 23, where he says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Or at the end of verse 24, for ye serve the Lord Christ. And even for the masters, this idea is repeated at the end of verse 1 of chapter 4, where he says, knowing that ye also, speaking to the masters, also have a master in heaven. I think it's very important that we remember this perspective as we look at this passage of Scripture and the title of the message this morning is this, Who you serve determines how you serve. Who you serve determines how you serve. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5. We find the story of Naaman. Maybe you're familiar with that story. Here this man, he was... Uh, the head of the guard or one of the officers in the army, in the Syrian army. The Syrian army at this time had, had just gone across and wiped out a lot of other enemies. They had taken control over the land of Israel. The nation of Israel was in fact paying tribute to the Syrians. 
And Naaman was one of the leaders in their army. And as you read the story of Naaman, you know that he contracted the disease called leprosy. This is an awful disease. One that still to this day, as far as I know, there's no cure for. A very debilitating disease and one that if someone got leprosy, they would be ostracized, they'd be put out from society because it was very contagious. They would lose their stature. They'd often lose, they couldn't live in their home anymore. It was a very awful thing. But in the story of Naaman, within that story, there's another story about a little, the Bible calls her a little maid. This was a young Israelite girl who had been taken from her home. She'd been taken from her parents, from her family, from the people that she loved, and she'd been put into slavery, and it was her job to serve Naaman's wife. You think about how awful that must have been for that young lady, to be taken away from what she loved and what she knew, from people that spoke her language, from a place that she understood where she was cared for, and now put in a place where she was someone else's slave. But even in that situation, this young girl still used that situation that she was in, not to get frustrated and not to fall apart, but rather to serve God even in a very difficult situation. And the Bible tells us that this young maid spoke to Naaman and to his wife and said, if Naaman would just go to the land of Israel, there's a prophet there who could heal him of his leprosy. And if you know the story, that's exactly what happened. Naaman went back to the land of Israel. He met up with the prophet. The prophet told him to dunk himself seven times in the Jordan River. And remember, Naaman, he didn't want to do it. He said, oh, that's a dirty river. We have a lot cleaner rivers back where I'm from. And his servant said to him, well, if he had asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done that? Come on, it's just dunking yourself seven times in the Jordan River. And so Naaman, he goes and he does it. And when he comes up the seventh time, his leprosy is gone. He's clean. And we read that story and we say, praise God that God can heal leprosy. But I'd also say, praise God that God can use a little slave girl who, yes, we don't rejoice in the fact that she had to be a slave. But even in her situation, she was still able to glorify God. She had enough influence in the house where she served to make a suggestion to her master, and her master listened to her. It would not be normal for a master to take the advice of his slave, especially a, a little girl who was his slave, and yet in this case he did. This tells you something about the way that little girl served in that house. This little girl cared enough about the well-being of her master that she told him how he could be healed. I mean, if you're a slave, do you, and somebody owns you and they're mistreating you, do you really want to tell them how to be healed? Now, we don't know exactly how Naaman treated her, but that's often the perception we get when we think of this kind of situation. And yet this little maid cared enough for her master that she said, if you'll go back to my land, there's somebody there that can tell you how to be healed. But I think we also see about this young lady that she had enough faith in God that he could heal Naaman. Can you imagine telling somebody with a debilitating disease, if you'll just go 
over here and talk to this person, they can tell you how you can be healed and God will heal you. That's some incredible faith of this young lady. The point of the message this morning is not that God hates slavery. The point of the message this morning, and you'll see Paul as he's writing here to the church at Colossae, that God can work even through something as hard and painful and difficult and even, we'd say, wicked as slavery to still accomplish His purpose. This young lady is a good example of the biblical commands for servants and their masters that are found here in Colossians 3 and 4. God often takes what we like to complicate because we see the big problems in society, and He simplifies it for us. Because just like we talked about last week, the answer doesn't lie within me. The answer doesn't lie out there somewhere. The answer lies with God. God is more concerned about spiritual change than about societal change. Even though... It's not that God doesn't care about the wickedness in society. But the answers to society are not just me going and changing somebody else. It starts by me dealing with the sin in my own heart. These commands to the early church were very important because it's likely that many in the early church, in the book of Acts and these epistles, were slaves. In the book of Corinthians, it talks about how not many mighty after the things of this world are chosen, but God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. Christianity throughout its history has often drawn its greatest numerical strength from the less advantaged groups in society. In fact, one pagan philosopher by the name of Celsus said derisively that the church was only made up of slaves, women, and children. That was kind of his reason why the church wasn't a good thing. And Origen, a, a Christian writer in the early church, he, he wrote a whole uh, rebuke, basically, to what Celsus had said. And part of the reason why slaves, women, and children have value it's not because society has say they have value. It's because God says they have value. And we'll see that right here in this passage. Yeah. Our society, our world, the culture has always gotten it wrong. But God always gets it right. And here in chapter 3, we really still drawing upon that idea, if you then be risen with Christ, we understand that because we're risen with Christ, our service, no matter our situation, master or slave, must always be focused on the Lord and motivated by a desire to please Him. Look at verse 22 with me, if you would. Servants. Who's he talking to first? Servants. The Greek word doulos. This is, this is a slave. This is somebody who's completely given over to the service of somebody else. Servants. And here's the command, obey. Servants, obey in all things your masters. We have a lot packed into that one phrase. 
Who are we talking to? We're talking to the servants, to the slaves. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to obey. In what ways are they supposed to obey? In everything, in all things. And who are they supposed to obey? Their masters. He says, your masters according to the flesh. This doesn't mean obeying through the strength of your flesh. This isn't saying obeying them out of a fleshly motivation. No, he's saying obey your masters who are made out of flesh. They're human beings. By the way, human masters make mistakes. Human masters are not perfect. Just like husbands aren't perfect, but wives are commanded to submit to them. Just like parents aren't perfect, but children are commanded to submit to them. Masters aren't perfect either. But the servant is to obey the master in all things. So the first point we see here very simply is this. Obedience is the command. Obedience is very simply doing the will of another. If you're obeying God, you're saying, God, not my will, but thine be done. I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's obedience. For a servant to obey his master is to say, Lord, master, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Obedience is the command. Servants, obey in all things your masters. This sounds simple until you have a terrible master. He doesn't leave room for, well, you obey masters if they're good masters and you don't obey masters if they're bad masters. He, he groups them all together here. Masters according to the flesh. Obey your human authorities that are put over you. So I think this brings up a very important question. If God really loves people, how could He allow them to be slaves or to stay slaves if they're believers? And I think that a lot could be said about the answer, but I have two thoughts I'd like to share with you. First of all, how could God allow that? Well, God is more interested in spiritual change than in societal change. We often want to see the system change and all of society's ills removed. But this cannot happen fully while the society is made up of sinners. You cannot legislate morality. Change must come from within. And it only comes from within when God changes a person from the inside out. And that's something only God can do through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for my sin and your sin and the sins of the whole world. You can't try hard enough and be good enough to truly be good. In the Gospels, it says it well, there is none good but God. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans says. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the second part of that answer, I would say, is this, that God is more interested in saving souls from hell than He is in stopping all the pain and suffering in this life. Remember when Jesus came to this earth? You say, well, I didn't live during that time. I understand. <laughs> you remember in your Bible, when you read about in the Gospels, as Jesus came to this earth and He walked on this earth, what did the Jews think about him? Well, some of them liked him, some of them didn't. What did they really want him to do, though? Did they really want him to die on the cross? No, they really wanted him to overthrow the Romans. 
because they were being oppressed by this foreign nation that had control over them, that was taxing them into oblivion, that was taking charge of everything about their lives. In a sense, a whole nation, if you will, was enslaved to another nation. And when Jesus came, they said, well, if you're the Messiah, then you'll set us free. You can throw off the Roman rule and we'll follow you to victory and you can be our king. But Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, the problem inside of me and the problem inside of you, our sin problem, is much bigger than any problem outside of us that we see. The biggest problem in your relationship is your own sin. But how easy is it to say, no, the biggest problem in this relationship is them, that person over there. If they would only change, that would fix my problem. That's a short-sighted and incorrect way to look at things. Now, granted, yes, could your life be a little easier in some ways if the person you're in a relationship with was easier to you? Would a servant's life be easier if they had a good master as opposed to a bad master? Absolutely, we understand that. But often we get so intent on changing our situation right here, our circumstances right here, that we're willing to sacrifice the eternal for something that's in the present. We should never sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the present because this present is just a vapor. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. So this command for servants to be obedient to their masters in all things wasn't Paul, this is not the Apostle Paul condoning slavery or saying, you know, it's okay, you just keep being a slave. Rather, it's saying, some of you are in this situation. And rather than just trying to change your situation because that'll fix your problem, realize you can submit to the Lord even in a very, very hard situation and God can still be glorified. Just like God was glorified in the life of the little maid who served Naaman and his wife. This doesn't make it easy to live with. But rather, it should cause us to have a shift of focus, a shift of perspective from the temporal to the eternal. Notice here, because it's not just obedience that's commanded, but also we see in verse 22 that obedience must be rendered conscientiously. Look again at verse 22 with me. He says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, pleasing God. Who you serve will determine how you serve. So yes, obedience to the master, but ultimately the servant is to be fearing God. Who you serve will determine how you serve. How are they supposed to serve? Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. This is sincerity of heart. This is a singular focus, a, a pure heart. We know what that's like, don't we? Sometimes we like to judge others for their motives and in, in what they're doing and why they're doing it. But we, can, we really know what our motives are, don't we? You know if you're sincere about something or if you're just putting on a show. 
you just want everybody to see you, that's what eye service is. It's literally two Greek words, one meaning eye and one meaning service, and put them together and it's now a compound word, eye service. It's so people can see what you're doing because you care more about what they see than what about is actually going on in your heart. And that makes you a man pleaser. As opposed to a God pleaser. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. The Lord sees your heart this morning. From an outward appearance, this is the good crowd. You're in church. The bad crowd's out there. Some of the folks at home on the live stream say, no, no, we're here, we're here. But that's the wrong way to look at things, isn't it? Yes, there are problems out there. But the problem that God is working on me about is the problem in here. This service must be rendered conscientiously. It's easy to render service when someone is watching. Do you serve because someone is watching you or because you want to please God? Maybe you've read growing up or maybe you've read it to your children or grandchildren, the story of Cat in the Hat. As mother leaves home for the day and it's a rainy, dreary day and not much fun, nothing to do around the house. Oh, I just want to say on a side note, thank you moms for making life fun because somehow when you leave, it's just no fun anymore. Kids are like, there's nothing to do. Mom is not just the one cooking and cleaning and taking care of the house. She's often the you know, the social calendar planner and the entertainment uh, coordinator and everything else. But those children that day, as mom left home, they were moping around with nothing to do. And, and what happened, right? The cat in the hat came to the door. Said, we can give you something fun to do. And he comes in and, and it seems exciting. It seems fun at first. And, and then he begins to make a big mess and a bigger mess and starts breaking things and that fish the whole time is saying, watch out, mother's going to come home, mother's going to find you. And if you remember, as you get to like the second to the last page in the book, you see that picture where you see mom's foot coming into the, onto the page there because mom is coming around the corner. And the cat in the head is rushing around cleaning the house to get out. So what does that book teach us, kids? As long as you get the house cleaned back up before mom gets home. It's okay. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Too often our Christianity is a cat-in-the-hat Christianity. As long as we get it all cleaned up before we have to be at church on Sunday. As long as we get everything straightened out so no one really sees what's going on, then it's going to be okay. Stop putting on a show. If we're putting on a show... We're not helping ourselves or anybody else. Who you serve will determine how you serve. But serving to be seen is not serving the Savior. It is only self-service. 
And self-service never brings blessing. The command is to obey, but the obedience must be done conscientiously with an attitude to please God. And this brings us to our final point. While the early church may have been made up of primarily those who were at the bottom of society, salvation is not just for those who are poor, it is also for those who are rich. And when you read in the epistles, we read about several wealthy individuals, Lydia, Philemon, and others who were part of the church. So we need to understand the gospel is not just for the poor and the socially disadvantaged, it's for everybody. But Jesus said it this way, he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because often those who are wealthy, those who have lots of education, those who have a lot of sort of in their mind things that they've done for themselves, they tend to trust in those things rather than trust in God. Whereas somebody who has nothing, who, who knows very little, who has not much to trust in for themselves, they find it easier to have faith in God. And yet for all of us, no matter our station, our position, it doesn't matter. All of us need to trust in the Lord because it doesn't matter how much money you have. God has it all. So, well, my pocket's full. Your pocket is not anything compared to what God has. Your bank account cannot compare to what the Lord owns. So this command here, I think it's very important. And we see this idea even reiterated at the end of verse 25 that God is not a respecter of persons. But he gives some very important things for masters. Some of you in here have an opportunity, while you may not own anybody in a slave relationship, you have people that work for you. You're, you're somebody's boss. Some of you, are, uh, you serve somebody else. You work for somebody else. And some of you are on both ends of that. You are somebody's boss, but you also work for somebody else. Notice these commands that he gives to the masters. And here I think we can really see that Paul is not condoning slavery. This is not saying this is, it's okay that you should go out and own people. Because notice how he tells masters to treat their slaves. He says, masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. He uses two legal terms here. Justice and equality. That which is just, that means what is right, what is rightly owed. Don't give them less than they're owed. Don't blame them for something that they didn't do. And show equality. What's equality? Well, give them the same, treat them like you would want to be treated. Think about how radical that would have sounded to the culture that Paul was writing to in Colossae. A culture that was... Often most of the work was done by slaves. You had lots of, uh, a few slave owners and lots of slaves. That's kind of how the society functioned at that point in history. And for Paul to come and say to these masters, give them justice and equality. Paul's not condoning the ways of society. Rather, he's speaking out against it, saying you ought to treat these people 
the same way you would want to be treated. He's commanding them to treat somebody who legally had no standing. He's saying, give them justice. In the eyes of the law, they had nothing. It didn't take a bunch of witnesses in a court trial to, to convict a slave for a crime. You just had to say they did it, and they were guilty. Paul says, no, give them justice, give them equality. Take someone who has no legal standing and now give them the same kind of standing you would want yourself to have. This is a huge step up from where these people lived in their culture. This is the command to masters. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. And he gives a reason for this. Again, it goes back to the whole point of this message. Who you serve will determine how you serve. And he tells them here, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. You could be the ruler of, of everything you can look at. You know, like Yertle the turtle. I guess I'm on a Dr. Seuss kick this morning. Sorry, Dr. Seuss. I've enjoyed a lot of your books along the way. He said, I'm the ruler of all that I see. And he climbs up on the back of all these turtles and he gets so high, I can see this, I can see that. Look, I'm a ruler of all these things. And he gets higher and higher and all these turtles, he's standing on their backs. And then if you remember the story, there's one little turtle at the bottom of the stack. His name was Mac. And Mac, he finally got tired of all those turtles on his back. And he shifted his weight, he let out a little cough. All of a sudden, the whole pile tumbled down. And there was Mac left on the top of the rock there in the pond. And Yertle, he'd fallen from such a high position, he lands and his whole head's covered in mud. So he became king of the mud. We can try to lift ourselves up as high as we want. but we still have a master in heaven. I see a lot of synergy in all of these relationships here. While wives have, are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives, husbands, remember, you have a master in heaven. So treat her with justice and equality, love. While children are to submit to their parents, parents, you still have a master in heaven. So love your children and care for them as God would have you to do it. And then he's speaking specifically to the masters here of these slaves. And you, you may own some slaves. You may have some people working for you. You may think you're big stuff. Don't forget, you have a master in heaven. When Jesus walked on this earth, he had a group of men that followed him, his disciples. And there came a day 
when his disciples began to argue amongst themselves. They were trying to figure out who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. In fact, James and John even had their mother go and petition on their behalf. Who's going to sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? I love how Jesus responds in this situation. He doesn't get up and start preaching to them. Rather, the Bible says that he girded himself, so he kind of hitched up his clothing. He grabbed a towel and a basin of water, and he got down on his knees and he started washing his disciples' feet. As he began to wash their feet, he said very simply, If you wish to be great, you must be a servant. And he said, if you want to be the greatest of all, you must be the servant of all. Even in his command here in chapter 4, verse 1, to masters, there's a reminder to those masters that they are to treat others with justice and equality because they too are servants. You see, in all of this, in all of these relationships, we don't read about Paul telling this church, well, try to get yourself out of your situation. You're in a bad situation. No, he says, here's how you are to live humbly and obediently in the situation where you've been placed. Because God has you there for a reason. God is working through you if you'll allow Him to work. Often we just say, get me out of this situation and that'll fix my problem. God says, no, submit yourself, humble yourself, love, fear God, do right, confess your sin. That's the real answer to your problem. And folks, we all know, I'm tired of hearing about it just like you, we can Turn on the news, we can look online, whatever, and you're just going to see endless streams of people complaining about their current situation. Either complaining because the system's bad and we need to change it, or complaining because people are complaining that the system is bad and it needs to be changed. Everybody's complaining. And we all feel inside ourselves that if we could just fix all that out there, go back to normal, then we'd be okay. I feel that way too. It felt like that yesterday, didn't it? We should have been having a big church-wide picnic with everybody there instead of just you know, a few people getting together. We should be able to do all the things that we want to do just the way that we want to do it. People shouldn't have to struggle financially, lose their jobs. People shouldn't have to cancel their vacations. People shouldn't, and we have all this kind of righteous indignation about all these things. The system is against us. Well, it was against Jesus too. And Jesus said, in this world, ye shall have tribulation. But fear not, for I have overcome 
the world. Our responsibility as followers of God is to submit ourselves, to humble ourselves to His Word, His will, and His way. And say, God, I'm here to serve you. Because who you serve will determine how you serve. And when you serve God as He's commanded you to serve, whether you're a master, a servant, or somewhere in between, we have great opportunities to share the gospel and to make a difference in our own lives and in this world around us for the glory of God. Because that's where it all comes back to. Knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. How's your relationship with that master this morning? Your relationship with him will determine what your relationship looks like in your marriage, with your children, at work, in every situation you're in. Start with that relationship. And then let God help you as you do your best to obey Him in these other areas, in these human relationships. And let God get the glory as we walk worthy of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Father, we love you. Pray that you'd help us today to take these thoughts and apply them to our lives. Lord, I believe that what we were talking about this morning has much broader ramifications than just the master-servant relationship. You know, that was the primary focus this morning. I think it plays into our marriage relationships, our parenting relationships with our children, our work relationships, really every human type of interaction that we have. Pray that you would help us, that you would humble us, that we would walk in obedience. If there's somebody here this morning that's never trusted you as their Savior, I pray that they would trust you today. Don't put it off. When God forgives you of your sin and gives you eternal life, it's the greatest thing in all the world. Being able to live for Him in this life and having His Holy Spirit to encourage you and, and knowing that you have a home in heaven for eternity, such a wonderful thing. Lord, for those who know you as their Savior, I pray that they would commit to following you faithfully through these dark and difficult and, and times where there's lots of unknowns. Thankful that you know everything. Pray that you'd guide and direct us as we follow you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.